Um, If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and jump to, we're going to be in Deuteronomy, we're going to be in Ephesians, we're going to be in Matthew, Uh, we're going to jump around a little bit, um, but those three are mostly where we're going to be. This is the last week of our series uh, called The Undivided Self. And uh, if you've been following along, what you're recognizing is we are naming the fact that you and I show up differently in different places. Whether it's with our neighbors, whether it's with our family, whether it's with our coworkers, um, whether it's with strangers or as a citizen, we show up differently in different spaces depending on who we're with. Um, it's a thing we all do. In the I was thinking about this for an example of what does it look like. I was sitting there and I was talking with my neighbor. I took down my Christmas lights. You can applaud. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's a big deal. Um, I took them down. He left his up. I let his wife know that he left those up. Not appreciated, right? And then I go into the house um, and our kids are doing something that... I don't appreciate, and I might find myself yelling. Those are two totally different ways of showing up, depending on who I'm with or, or where I am. Some of you are going to go to a Super Bowl party, or some of you go and hang out with certain friends, and you're grateful that your coworkers are not around to see you. Because how you show up at work is different than how you show up elsewhere. What we long for is this, um, this unified this, this way of showing up no matter where we are. And we want to be able to show up consistently. Where there isn't a gap between how we're acting. Dallas Willard once said that a disciple of Jesus today is someone who asks this question. What would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were you as a neighbor? What would Jesus do if he were you as a spouse? As a father, as a mother, what would Jesus do if he were a coworker, if he were you as a coworker? And the interesting thing is we don't always have that answer, do we? We desire to live a life a life like Jesus. And then our desire To live an undivided life has to be matched with our desire to live like Jesus because that's how he lived. But the thing is, it's not that easy, is it? Because fear and anxiety, uh, this idea that we want to be, we want to belong, we want to feel valued, we want to feel worthy. um, So how we show up isn't always the same because of fear and anxiety. And the thing is, is that this is not... This is not a, um, a new thing for us. This is not a new thing for, for human beings. This goes back thousands of years. In fact, this goes on and we read it through scripture of times and time again where people are showing up differently depending on who they're with. There are these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and what they do is they try to trap Jesus. Matthew's, uh, Matthew documents this this time in Jesus' life where these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees try to catch him living a divided life. And the interesting thing is that as they're going through it, what we are to take from this story is how did Jesus 
What would Jesus do if he were you? Well, we're going to find out in this story that Matthew documents. So um, here's the kind of the backdrop of what we're seeing in this story. Um, The Sadducees, they start to question Jesus. And they question him in a way that wants to, they want to trap him, they want to trip him up, they want to show a contradiction. And so what they do is they start asking him about who, how do we pay taxes to Caesar? Now you can imagine if Jesus answers the wrong way about paying taxes to Caesar, you can imagine what's going to happen to him. So he gives this brilliant response, and I'm not going to go through that, you can read it, it's in Matthew 22. And then they ask him about marriage and resurrection. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, okay? So they ask him this, and again, he answers brilliantly to a point where the Sadducees leave. And that's where we pick up. Now, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they assembled together, and one of them, an expert in religious law, asked him a question to test him. So I don't know if you're like me, but when you read the Bible, you kind of picture what's happening here. And I picture the Pharisees. They're another religious group, okay? Both the Sadducees and the Pharisees do not appreciate Jesus, don't believe in what he's teaching. and In fact, they consider it blasphemy, which is a serious offense, and they're trying to trap him, okay? So the Pharisees, I pictured them. I picture them like they assembled, right? So they're all like huddled around, and they're like, did you see what Jesus did to the Sadducees? And they're like, hey, Frank, you go ahead and take care of this. And Frank's like, no, 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 no. Hey, Scott, you go and do this. And they start to get, they're trying to come up with the best question that they can. And then an expert in the law, in religious law, comes and says, I got it. This is like the bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, two outs. And he says, I got the question that will result in a grand slam. Okay? And here's his question. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? What's the greatest law, Jesus? Now, keep in mind that there are 613 laws, and the Pharisees would go ahead and they would kind of divide them into what's important, what's not, and what they're not doing is they're not trying to confirm what they already know or confirm what they think. They're trying to trap Jesus into saying, this is the greatest And this one isn't. Because if you name the greatest, what you're naming is what's not the greatest. And here's his response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. He's asked about the most important divine rule. In an attempt, in a last-ditch effort to trap him, he's asked about the most important divine rule, and what he names is what we know as the Shema. The Shema is a religious prayer. It's a practice that Orthodox Jews practice at least twice a day. It is everything. It is everything to them. And what he's quoting and what the Pharisees would recognize is that he's quoting scripture from Deuteronomy. They understand where this would be in the Torah. This is, this is nothing new to them. And what we read in Deuteronomy, I want you to hear these words. 
says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Notice no division. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. There is no division. There is no divided self when he's considering what the greatest commandment is. What he's saying in this is you have to love God with all of your being. Don't love God with just some of your being and then love your addiction. Don't just love God with some of your being and then love the anger that you feel when someone does something wrong to you. Don't love God with some of your being and love the material things that you strive to get and purchase. Love God with your all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love God with all of your being. There is no divided self in this. And then he doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't stop there, but he names a second thing. And he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This to me, this speaks of what we can often fall into, which is uh, selfishness. What's best for me in this moment? And what Jesus is saying, I don't, what we are to consider is serving others, loving others, caring for others, considering others, love others as yourself. In both Matthew's account and the scripture that we find in Deuteronomy, do you notice this complete harmony in how the authors describe the daily life in somebody's faith? There's not a divided self. It beautifully ties one person's whole self to their relationship with the creator. So if this message were to end here, my guess is that you would feel inspired. You would feel like, okay, I get it. I understand um, what the Shema is. I understand what, what we're learning about in Deuteronomy. I understand what Jesus considers the greatest commandment. And then you might leave this gym and you might go home and you might have lunch. And then you might go to a Super Bowl party. And then you might go to work. And the stresses and the responsibilities and all these engagements that you have to be at, the busyness of life all of a sudden comes up. And the question of what would Jesus do if he were me um, no longer applies. You get into an argument with your spouse. And instead of going into it with reconciliation, what you do is you go into it and you hold on to the resentment. That question of what would Jesus do if he were me as a spouse no longer applies. You start to hear some gossip and some slandering around the community. And you hear it in your circles. And then you engage in it. The question of loving others as yourself, the question of what would Jesus do if he were me no longer applies. You see, we often have the best of intentions when we leave here. But then we go right back to our old ways. We often have the best of intentions of living an undivided life. But then all of a sudden, this division comes in. And it's hard. The temptations come in. 
when we go into this, the, the, when I was writing this, I came across this study that the Barna Group did. It's a research group, and they did it for three years. And what they did is um, in 2019 to January 2023, they came up, and what they did is they asked, um, they did a survey. And what they found is that 63% of Americans claim the Christian faith. 63%. I don't know why, but that number kind of shocked me. I, I expected it to maybe not be as high. I mean, I live in West Michigan, so what we see around us um, feels like not the norm throughout our country. And so that 63% could just kind of stood out to me. But then it begs the question, well, what does that exactly mean? And what they named as this is the criteria for the 63% is that they confess their sins, that they accepted Jesus as their Savior, and that they, they believe that they will go to heaven when they die. So those three things attribute to the 63%. But then there were additional questions. And the additional questions that came up lean into what does it mean to actually live an undivided life? Questions that means to live from a biblical worldview, which involves behaviors based on Jesus' teaching, not just intellectual beliefs. Because those three are just intellectual beliefs. But now they went into the behaviors. And that 63% dropped down to 4%. 4%. And I wonder how many of us, when we look at this and say, 63% to 4%, that is a divided self. That is somebody who believes in Jesus, but then their behaviors are not according to the biblical worldview or how we are to live according to how Jesus lived. The terminology that Barney uses is integrated disciples. And unfortunately, what, we've, what we see as a community is that we value convenience and comfort. We value consumption. And it's this gravitational force that almost seems to pull us away and create a divided self. Especially this time of year. If you don't believe me, go to a gym membership. Like, go to a gym. I go to Snap. You can go to uh, Planet Fitness. You can go to the Y. And you ask them a question. Ask them, when is your busiest month? When do you think they'll say it? January. Is that true? Thank you. Scott, he's very familiar with this world. Um, now, when do you think those numbers tail off? That's the second question that you can ask them. That, that soon? I would say April. I would, I would give it a couple months, maybe after spring break. But it's not soon after. You're not wrong. What we notice is we have the best of intentions to live an undivided life, but then busyness, and we fall right back into our same old habits. People have these best of intentions. You're not alone in this. And grace abounds. And I'm no different. Okay? In fact, um, I'm reading this book. It's called Atomic Habits uh, by James Clear. This is really good. I'm reading this with my family. Um, and it's because I want to change some of my habits. So I'll let you in on a little secret, a little habit of mine. Um, 9.30 p.m. 
9.30 p.m. comes around, and um, we get these cookies. It's, a, it's like a peanut butter with chocolate chip, and then it has, it's half dipped in chocolate. Yeah. They, <laughs> it is so good. Like the texture of it when you bite down on the chocolate and the cho- everything about it. And then I wrap that up in paper towel, and then I go get an ice-cold glass of milk, Large, like small enough, but wide enough where I can dip it, and you put it in there for 10 seconds. If you go 11, it's too long. 10 seconds, and it is a little slice of heaven. 9.30, it's like Pavlov's dog where the bell rings and my mouth starts watering. I know it's 9.30. I tell my wife, I'm no longer going to do that. Like, that's not good for me. It's not good for my cholesterol, so I'm going to stop doing it. So that was in, like, in December, I'm saying January, that's the time. January 4 rolls around. And I, 9.30 hits. And I go get that cookie. And I get an ice cold glass of milk. And I go back to my chair. I have a chair that sits there. Like, it is perfect. Everything's set up to be great. And I'm walking. And I'm walking by my wife, who's sitting on the couch. And I know I'm doing something wrong. There's a divided self. And I look over at her. And she simply does this. (laughs) Subtle. Real subtle. Very effective. I was mad. And didn't have any right to be mad at that. But I was upset about it. Because it was a reminder that I had the best of intentions. And yet I did not follow through. Just four days, like January 4 hits. In my best of intentions, I fall. April hits after having a gym membership and you fall. Why is it that we have the best of intentions and we don't follow through with any of it? And here's the thing. This book, brilliant. I recommend it. This is really good. Here's the other fascinating thing. What you learn in this book is what has been taught for thousands of years in Scripture. There is no difference. The Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to a church in Ephesus. And just a little background of of what uh, Ephesus is like. It's a super wealthy town. They have everything they need. They have everything they want. There are no, like wants and desires that aren't at their fingertips, okay? And what often happens when we have an abundance of something is that it's never enough, and we want more, and we want more. And what they do is they start leaning in to some unhealthy habits. They start leaning into a divided self. They start leaning in um, to some pagan gods that they think are going to give them all the stuff that they want and need. And Paul calls them out. And he recognizes exactly what's happening. But Paul names something in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He names something about why we often fall short of our habits. Why we continue to live a divided life. And I'm going to read this through. And I'm going to ask if you can pick, pick up on what he's, what he's naming might be the reason that we fall short of continuing with our good habits. It says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him with accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on your new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What stands out to you in this? Is it this? Go to the next slide. Put off your old self, being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to put on your new self that is made in the righteousness and holiness, in alignment. To put off your old self, which is a divided self, and to put on your new self, which is undivided. What Paul's naming here is simply an identity. What Paul's naming are not the outcomes. What he's not naming are the habits. No, what he's naming, what he's naming is, who are you? What is your identity? What is your self? What is your old self and what is your new self? In this book, um, I want to show these circles here. And it goes in to these three layers of behavioral change. You see, what we often focus on when we want to change something is the outcomes, is the outer ring. What Paul's talking about is an identity. When we have an identity, it leads to a process in a system because that's who we are. It's everything. It's why Jesus was talking about what is the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you are. It is your identity. And then we have the processes and what ends up happening are the outcomes. If we go to the next slide, where we often kind of focus on is we go from an outcome-based habit, right? We go from, I want to, like, let's go back to the cookie example. I want to stop eating the cookie, but what if my, what if my definition of my identity was, I want to be a healthy person? My son asked me a question. He goes, what, what identity when we were kind of discussing this book, what identity would you want to live into? And I originally, when I was reading this book, I said, I want to have more, I don't want to yell at my kids as much. I don't want to lose my temper. I don't want to show anger as much. And that was an outcome-based. But if I were to look at the identity piece, it would be, I want to be a more patient father. That is a completely different perspective. What Paul's naming in, in here is, what is your identity? What does that look like? Because if you focus on your identity, then the process and the systems, and like, I would then recognize that as a patient father, what are my triggers to not being a patient father? Well, not getting enough sleep. So then, in order to be a patient father, I would then go ahead and go to bed instead of saying, we got one more in us for Netflix. We got one more show in us. I would know the value of getting enough sleep. I would know the value. I wouldn't go and buy the cookie anymore, right? Because I want to be a healthy person. I would go to the gym. I would create time. It's all focused from our identity, and Paul names it beautifully. Take off your old self and put on your new self. And those are all really healthy identities for us to live into. But I sometimes wonder if we, um, if we feel like we've messed up too much or we feel like we're not worthy or we're not, value, um, not of value. And so the identity of being a follower of Jesus 
that we're not worthy of being having that identity. And I'm here to tell you that that is as far from the truth as you can be. That grace abounds, that God sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me because he knew we would live a divided life. When we look at our identity, I wonder how many of us, instead of focusing on our identity as being a follower of Jesus, how many of us focus on the outcomes that we want to um, read a devotional more, that we want to pray more, that we want to serve more. Those are all outcomes. If you were to focus on your identity of being made in the image of God, of being a, a child of God, as being somebody who follows Jesus, what you would soon recognize is that identity is going to start filtering in to our everyday lives where we don't show a divided self. You say, that's great, Ben. How do we do it? What does that look like? If you're asking that question, uh, you're not alone. That has been asked for thousands of years to a point where Paul then goes from an identity to what does this mean in our everyday life? And so if we keep reading in Ephesians, he's going to name these for us. And I'm going to go through these slowly because there's a, there's a this and then there's a that. There's a divided life and then there's an undivided life. Listen to how he describes this. In Ephesians chapter 22, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, must stop lying, must stop being dishonest, and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Notice the lack of division. He names it right there. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. The en- Let me just quick pause here for a minute. The enemy loves it when you and I show a divided life. The enemy loves it when there's a contradiction. Because what it does is it shows an example of somebody who says one thing and then does another thing. And the, and the enemy just loves having that foothold. And Paul wants to name that with this church in Ephesus. Anyone who has been, been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. If you're sitting there and you're like, well, I don't steal. That's good. It's not what Paul's talking about. If we were to peel back some of the layers of the onion here, it's not about stealing. It's about being selfish and not considering others, not loving God and loving others as yourself. What what he's saying is when you steal, you are not considering somebody else. But instead... Do something useful with your hands. Instead of being selfish, I want you to go and serve. Because somebody has needs and you're able to help them. It's loving somebody else as yourself. And then it continues, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Do not gossip, do not slander. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. I love that. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. It's really easy for us to tear people down 
But how useful is it when we encourage and when we build somebody else up? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, and brawling, and slander, and along with every form of malice. And then he says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. If we go to this next slide, you're going to see a divided self and an undivided self. When we look at those, what Paul's naming is when we start with an identity of, follow, of being a follower of Jesus, this is what an undivided self looks like. What we've been struggling with, the temptations of our world are the same temptations that we had years ago. They just look different. I love how Paul, in Colossians, he kind of names, what, where does this come from? Where does an undivided self come from? And he names this in Colossians 2 verse 7. He says, let your roots grow down into him. And let your lives be built on him. Notice the foundational truth of, the, of someone's identity. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. Then your outcomes look different. Your results look different. Your habits look different. And you will overflow with thankfulness. If we live into our true identity, it's easier for us to recognize that the habits that we have don't align with our identity. Maybe it's a habit that you have when you're around certain people in certain groups and by naming it, it releases its power. You take off your old self and you put on your new self. So here's what I would love for us to do this week. I want us to ask three questions, okay? And the first question that I want us to answer in this is what is your identity? Can you say it's a follower of Jesus? My hope is yes. If you have questions about it, I would love to have a conversation with you. Is it to be a patient mother or father? Is it to be a good friend? Is it to be a, someone who cares for others really well? That's your identity. And the next question that I, that I want you to ask is, what habits do you have that align with your identity? And, vice, and then the other side of it is, what habits do you have that don't align with, your, with that identity that you named? What does that look like for you? What are the habits? Do you not get enough sleep so that impacts being patient? Do you care more for material things so that impacts how generous that you are? What are the things, what are the habits that you have that don't align with your identity? And what habits do you need to develop in order to live into your identity. And the last one is, what's your plan for changing it? Maybe you need to stop getting the cookies at Meyer. Maybe you need to create space in the morning that instead of looking at your phone, because if you're like me, it's the first thing that you pick up. Maybe instead of that, and you want to be somebody who dives into word, to the word right away. Maybe you plug your phone in away from your bed so you can't reach it. And you put your Bible or you put your devotional next to you. By having an identity that you name and that you want to live into, 
it changes the way that we act and it changes the outcomes. Does that make sense? So I think it's only fitting um, that we end with the sacrament of communion. Because what we're recognizing is that Jesus died on the cross. And at that time, he experienced division from his father. But he didn't stay there. No, instead, he rose again and now is seated at the right hand of the throne. He rose again for you and for me to recognize that even though we live a divided self, that God loves us so much and calls us to put on a new self, to put on a new way of living, and to live an undivided self. The Apostle Paul... He recounts the, the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he had given thanks and after they had supper, he had took, taken the cup. And he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured for you. When we drink this, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's coming. And I hope we take that to heart. I hope we recognize exactly what God did for you and I. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much uh, for this morning. God, I thank you for the identity that you call us to. God, I thank you for a recognition of our old self and what you call us to with a new self. God, I thank you for the grace to recognize that even though that we may have messed up time and time again, God, that you still love us and want a relationship with us. I pray that if we don't feel that today, God, that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts to recognize that you want nothing more than a relationship with us. God, I thank you for the sacrament of communion that we can join together and recognize what your son did for us. We love you, God, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.